Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. In this week's Reagan Forum podcast, we go back to our in-person event with Orrin Schneider, the grandson of a Holocaust survivor, for his recent book, The Apprentice of Buchenwald, the true story of the teenage boy who sabotaged Hitler's war machine, a true story of inner strength, resourcefulness, and optimism. Of Orrin Schneider's grandfather's life in the concentration camps, Elie Wiesel's son once said, being an inmate of a Nazi concentration camp did not stop Alexander Rosenberg. It did not stop him from doing whatever he could to keep his father alive, and it did not stop him from sabotaging the Nazi war effort by subtly tampering with the weaponry he assembled. In today's program, Oren discussed his book with Reagan Foundation Institute Chief Marketing Officer, Melissa Giller. Let's listen. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's our honor to have you here. Um, I want to start, I think, maybe a simple question, maybe not so simple, but um, why was it so important to you to write this book? Hi, Melissa. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, before I answer the question, um, I want to send my condolences um, to the families of the killed, um, the uh, kidnapped, and the wounded of the terrorist attack um, that happened on October 7th in Israel. Um, we've not seen such pictures. We've not witnessed such deeds uh, since the Holocaust. Um, it's a terrible time for Israel. Um, I wish for the, uh, the kidnapped uh, toddlers, babies, kids, women, men, elderly to be back at home as soon as possible. Um, I'm sending my best to the brave warriors that are now fighting a war uh, on behalf of all of us. Um, they're fighting a barbaric terror organization uh, that is using its own people as human shields and creating terrible um, human tragedy for all, and hopefully we'll, we'll witness better times. This book, um, it's been in the making for 48 years. My grandfather raised me. Um, he was the most important person in my life. I lost my father at a very young age. He was in an, Air, an Air Force pilot in the Israeli Air Force. Um, he died when I was a toddler. Um, my, mother, my dear mother, who's no longer with us, um, was studying to become um, an MD, and my grandparents were there to raise me and my sister. Um, my grandfather, who was toughened by the war and by being a survivor, wanted to make sure that his grandson grows to be as tough as he was, and his way of doing it was to, to raise me on his Holocaust survival stories. So I remember us... Um, in my grandparents' big bed on a Friday afternoon, um, and him not reserving any detail, just telling everything that had happened to the family, um, and walking me step by step, taking me by the hand through the path uh, that they've taken through their survival. And that's one of the things that struck me so much in reading your book. Um, we've been very fortunate here to have met many survivors and many family members of survivors, and most of them 
tell a similar story, that they didn't talk about their experience if they were the survivor or if they were the child of the survivor, didn't hear about what happened for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, they weren't ready to talk about it. The situation didn't present itself. Um, you know, the stories where you know, the grandchild didn't know that the grandmother was in, in Auschwitz until the grandmother was 70 or 80 years old. And I found it so interesting that your grandfather was open and honest with you at such a young age. Do you know why he felt compelled to do that? I think first and foremost, he felt responsible for my upbringing. And he thought that really this is something that will be very important for me uh, to know at a young age where we come from, who we are. Um, but he also felt, um, he felt that he had the duty to tell the story of those who were lost, who were not coming back. Um, I remember him sitting with my third grade classmates and telling these stories, obviously not at the same level of detail. Um, but he wanted, he wanted to tell these stories. He thought that those, those were important and he was also a very practical person. Um, he went through unbearable hardships, but in 1945 he was able to, to create a separation between the past and the future and he became a very optimist person yeah. uh, and it was very important to him that we all are the same way yeah. we know um, that the world is is cruel and that there's evil in the world but we should also know that life is good um, and we should take an optimistic point of view now i know from reading your book that he did pass away before the book was published did he know you were writing it we always talked about it. I always told him that one day I'm going to tell his story. He always dismissed it and he said, well, there were hundreds of thousands of survivors. What makes my story special? What makes my story worthy um, of being told? Um, he always dismissed it. Um, but the last time I held him, it was 2019, just before COVID, he was already feeble um, and I told him that the first opportunity that, that comes, I didn't know COVID was coming and this was a COVID project, uh, that this story is going to be told. Um, he gave me a hug and said, go for it. Um, I'll, I'll be proud to read it. Um, now, if I remember correctly in the book, um, your grandfather's parents actually were given the chance to leave Czechoslovakia before the war got really bad um, and they chose not to leave. Do you know why? I mean, that's a, it's a great question, and when you read the story, you understand that, first and foremost, it's a classic uh, tale of the frog in a, in a pot of melting water, uh, boiling water, right? It's, in the beginning, it's not as warm, not, a, not as hot, there's no reason to leave, and when it becomes really hot, it's, it's too late. But more specifically, in, in a more nuanced way, they were wealthy. They had a lot to lose. Uh, they had their assets, they had their business, they had their house, they had their rental properties. You don't just leave and, and leave this all behind you. Um, beyond that, they were highly educated. Um, they were taught in German by their tutors, at least the mother, uh, my great-grandmother. Um, Berlin was the, the center of culture, the center of fashion, the center of um, philosophy. Um, it, it's unimaginable to think that such terrible things could come out of Germany or Austria. And when, when Hitler was uh, was first on, in the news, they, they dismissed him as an Austrian riffraff that the German would be able to, to take care of very, very quickly. So it, it was unimaginable to them that these things could happen. And they've also built a position um, in their own community 
which, they f which made them feel safe. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it, it would save them, um, but they, they didn't feel that um, they were at such risk, and when it became evident um, that, I mean, their demise is, is closed, there was nothing for them to do. Which leads perfectly into my next question. Because they were affluent, because they knew people in the right places, because of the um, place they had created for themselves in society and the community, um, and the relationship with the mayor, um, I think the mayor had a lot to do with keeping them out of the camps for as long as he could. Will you share with our audience um, the story of the mayor? Absolutely. So Solomon Rosenberg, my great-grandfather, um, was a trader. He was, he was a great business person and he managed what I would describe as a, a localized Neiman Marcus, like specialty luxury store in their, in their um, small town. Um, they would sell beautiful product for um, the royalty and novelty of, of, of that region. The mayor was probably their best customer. Mm -hmm. He would never pay. Um, and Part of what, what Alexander learns is that there's reasons why you allow the mayor um, to pick groceries and, and other, other types of product without asking them to pay. Um, let, me, let me read you a piece. I was awakened early on a sunny day by a loud knocking on the front door. It was a damn day none of us will ever forget. It was May 5th, 1942. Father opened the door and fronts the mayor walked in hastily. Zolly, apologies for the early hour interruption. For a long time, I feared this day would come. I wanted to personally let you know that last night, a German army battalion arrived and is now camped at the main entrance to town. We just received orders to gather all Jewish families and marched them through Main Street to the train station entrance this morning. He paused and then added, train cars are ready and waiting at the station for the families, and they will be heading north this evening to Poland. He then said that the local SS field commander had granted the town leadership the prerogative to name 10 Jewish families that were essential to the economy and would be spared deportation and allowed to remain in town unharmed. The mayor himself compiled the list and our family was included as one of the 10. He repeatedly asked my father not to worry. Mom and I, well, mom was standing next to me at the edge of the stairway on the second floor and we were listening to the conversation. Whatever you do, Zoli, do not leave the house today. Tell Irena and your boy not to go out. If anyone comes knocking, especially the Germans, show them the white certificate and ask them to speak with me. I will be at the train station all morning. Father hadn't muttered a single word. I will be attaching this official notice to your front door to inform the SS that the residents of this house are not candidates for deportation and that you should not be taken to the train station. Franz left as, swift, as swiftly as he came in. It felt as if all the oxygen has been sucked out of our home instantaneously. Father was left frozen, holding onto the front doorknob. Mom was sitting on the floor next to me, staring at the brick wall. Moving a few words later. The scenes from that morning will forever be carved in my memory, as much as I tried to eradicate them. A line of people was progressing slowly toward the train station. Among them were friends of mine from school, my teachers, our baker, and his family, our family doctor and his family, families with babies, young children, women and women, young and old, walking along in a straight, orderly line through the street, down to the station, carrying suitcases and bags. They just kept on coming. German soldiers made sure no one broke rank. 
They were all walking peacefully and quietly at a slow and constant pace. My heart was pounding. It was completely surreal. When I read that, I could, I could see it in my mind's eye. It was such a powerful way to write it. And it actually made me wonder, why did you choose to write the book in your grandfather's point of view as I versus he? Um, it was very clear to me that, I mean, my level of um, solidarity and emotional connection with the story was mm. such that I, I felt as if I was him. Mm. I mean, he's been telling me these stories ever since I was a very, very young boy. Wow. And, I, and I felt as if I, I had seen these sights with my own eyes. That's incredible. Um, my next question I actually spoke to you about earlier because as I was writing the question, it made me feel the same words I used to earlier today. It made me feel like I was trivializing your grandfather's story. It's the last thing I want to do. Um, because obviously what he went through and what his parents went through and his family went through is just a horrifying experience. But in reading the book, it was like there was this little angel sitting on their shoulders, taking them from the mayor helping them and then people in the camp helping them and whatever it may be that got him through um, the Holocaust. Um, I guess my question is, did he feel, that it's the word lucky that I'm not very, I don't really like here, because obviously he wasn't lucky. But did he feel lucky in his, how he survived, or did he just think it was his circumstances? Did he ever talk about that? He talked about it all the time. And he would agree with you. He would use the word lucky. He, he definitely believed that they were very, very lucky. I mean, he told us about cousins, nephews, aunts, uncles, who were smarter, richer, better connected, that didn't make it that um, were taken to Treblinka and to Auschwitz and were ex exterminated. So basically, it's, it was really about luck. And it was about taking the initiative and making sure that you, I mean, play with the cards that you're dealt. Um, but he, he absolutely felt that they were lucky. Um, so your book is called The Apprentice of Buchenwald. So I want to talk about his time there. I have a handful of questions. Um, he was a factory worker there. Um, let's talk about Gunther. Uh, maybe share with our audience who he is. And did your grandfather ever share his true thoughts about him? Did he see him as a savior? So one of the more interesting characters in his story and in the book, and let me take a few steps back. Um, the whole region of Buchenwald, the city of Weimar, the state of Thuringia, is a very industrialized area in Germany. It's one of the birthplaces of the armament industry. So a lot of the guns that are um, collected and purchased in this country, uh, their origins came from Thuringia, from that area. The Mauser gun, handguns. Um, this whole area was uh, filled with factories that used to be owned by Jews, Jewish families. So Simpson & Co. was a very famous um, gun factory that produced the Mauser. In the 1930s, uh, the Jews were forced to give, to hand over these factories to the, um, the Nazi um, party in Thuringia and in other states. And Gunter, who managed the factory, um, used to be an apprentice for one of these Jewish families. Uh, he's now a member of the, of the Nazi party. He's now um, a manager in the factory. And in one of the more um, powerful scenes in the book, he basically saves uh, Solomon, Zoli, Alexander's father, and, and, and then Alexander. And in finding Solomon, he finds a gold mine. Usually comes to Buchenwald to select his forced laborers. 
and they're usually Soviet 18-year-old um, uh, soldiers who don't speak any languages and cannot do many things. And all of a sudden, he, he finds this 35-year-old Jew who speaks six languages, who's fluent in German, who masters the art of accounting and business management out of the blue, and he knows that he's the person that he needs to bring to his factory, and he brings with him a son, a 17-year-old son, which is great because you have added leverage. The father doesn't do crazy things when they have a son there. The son doesn't do crazy things when they have a father to, uh, to take care of. So Gunther identifies an opportunity in finding Solomon and, and Alexander, and he gives them important and, and sensitive um, jobs in the factory, alongside uh, hundreds of, of Soviet um, forced laborers and, and French paratroopers and Danish policemen. Uh, they're two of the, the very, very few Jews that are operating in, a, in an ecosystem that produces the Wehrmacht, the German army's most important gun. Um, and in the book, it's, it's really described more of a, a Stockholm syndrome where you have Alexander looking at Gunther as someone who plays for the other team, but he's also the first person who really treated him like a human being for many, after many, many years in hiding and uh, after terrible, terrible months in the concentration camp. Um, so he's, he's becoming a father figure to him, uh, but he, he doesn't forget, I mean, that he basically represents the other side. Um, did your grandfather share with you what it was like to make the decision to join the underground factory workers? So he, he captures signals from very, very early uh, from their arrival to the, um, to the armament factory that there is an undercurrent, an underground activity that he's not privy to, that they, they're not aware of. And he's waiting for the moment that this gets disclosed, that this, this gets uh, presented to him. And because Gunther puts him in a very, very sensitive position in the factory, um, this is identified by the powers that be within the underground uh, movement, and he's contacted by a very senior Soviet um, prisoner of war that basically manages um, all of the sabotage activity. And he's being asked to take serious risks to transfer orders um, to other prisoners of war in the factory, prisoners of war in the factory, and for the first moment, it strikes him. This is the moment that he's been waiting for, but at the same time, he knows um, that saying yes um, to Grisha, to the to the Soviet POW, the the high-ranking officer, he puts his father in grave risk, and he doesn't know how to play this. More from our Reagan form with Orrin Schneider after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org slash give. That's reaganfoundation.org slash give. Now back to our Reagan Forum with Orrin Schneider. Well, which leads to my last question. I 
love, so the, so the relationship of you and your grandfather comes across in the book as such a strong relationship, as does the relationship between your grandfather and his father. Um, and in the book, when your um, grandfather is able to ask his father for permission to join the underground, and he's given the blessing. Yes. Um, did your grandfather share that? Obviously, it's in the book, but what was his sentiments about getting that blessing? I think they had, they had a very special relationship. They had a third a part to that relationship, and that was his mother or his wife, mm -hmm. Solomon's wife, Alexander's mother, Irena. When they were separated on the, um, in the train station just before they were taken, then she shouted to them, take good care of him, mm -hmm. which she didn't specify who she was speaking to. And each of them sort of understood it as something that they had to do to take care of, of the other. That created a, a very special bond between both of them. I'll read another piece that gives you an idea of, of what that bond meant in, in a camp. During that evening roundup, we ended up standing close to the farthest side of the prisoner formation. I was holding him with one hand and carrying the thin wooden plank with the other. By the time we, were, we arrived at the tent, the entrance had already been completely blocked by a pile of humans, and we knew we couldn't make it inside. It was time to experience the quintessential KLB which is short for Buchenwald, adventure. A night out in the wintry open air without any protection. We walked away silently. The temperature was below freezing, and I was still beating myself up for not getting us into the tent in time to secure a spot. Luckily for us, the wind wasn't blowing at all that night. Listen to me, Shani. If we don't handle ourselves smartly in the coming hours, the cold will kill us. We must sleep, and at the same time, we must make sure we don't freeze in the snow. How do you do that? We will take shifts sleeping on the plank. The person awake will have to continuously rub the sleeping person's body, head to toe, so we both don't freeze. It's critically important that you don't fall asleep during your shift, or we will both, both turn into icicles. So they massage each other every night. So one was sleeping for two hours, the other was massaging his body, and then they would sort of flip turns. That was such a visual for me when I was reading your book. It's Incredible what they did to keep each other alive. Um, they both made it to the liberation of Buchenwald. Um, can you talk about that liberation? Please. By chance. <laughs> um, explosion noises, noises were heard constantly. The next day was April 11, 1945. We were awakened by loud sounds of artillery rounds. Otherwise, everything was very quiet, but the guards were still up there with their metal helmets aiming their rifles outwards. In the early afternoon, out of the blue, it was all over. Came Bokenwald had fallen. We suddenly saw all the German guards hastily climb down from the watchtowers. A single tank broke through the main steel gate, dragging it under its chain, and halted in the middle of the camp close to our block. The charging tank was swiftly followed by ground troops. Our deepest wishes were answered. Father, the soldiers are here. The Germans are fleeing. I started shouting. Are the soldiers Russians or Americans? Please, please let them be Americans, he explained. He exclaimed, unable to hide his excitement and anxiety. So obviously these were mm -hmm. members of the uh, 6th Armored Division under Patton's 3rd Army. Um, and that, that starts their, their mission mm -hmm. to go back to Bratislava. Now, the camp is liberated. Um, for those we've spoken to who survived, they survived. 
their parents didn't survive, their grandparents didn't survive, their aunts and uncles didn't survive, their brothers and sisters didn't survive, they survived. The very, very lucky ones might have come out with a single family member. Um, your grandfather comes out with his father, they return home, they go back to their, I think, original house, and they find their grandmother, they find their aunts, their uncles, and they find their mom. Well, he, your grandfather finds his mom, which is just unbelievable to me. What was that experience for them to find their family, for your great-grandfather to find his wife, for your grandfather to find his mother? Um, that must have been incredible. So his parents never talked about it. Mm. He was the only person that, that talked about it. Um, Look, they, they found her, they believed her to be dead all this time, and they found that she was also sent to a labor camp, Ravensbrück, which wasn't that far away from Buchenwald, so the whole period they were at camp, she was at camp, working for a Siemens factory and building parts of the missiles that landed on London. Um, I mean, but they, they had a very, very difficult time finding their way from the camp um, until they found her, and it took them weeks to rebuild strength. Um, and, and sort of start, start to rebuild their life. Eventually, um, my grandfather married my late grandmother and they, they decided to move to Israel or she decided for him that they were going to move to Israel. Um, and his parents and her parents would follow suit a year later after the War of Independence was over in Israel and would join them. Mm. Did your grandfather ever talk about survivor's guilt? Um, he did not have survivor's Good. guilt. I think that what he did have is a strong sense of duty to tell the story of what he went through, tell the story of the ones that did not survive. Um, he was very, very proud um, that he survived. He, he found significant pleasure in going back to Germany. Uh, he did that almost every year. He wanted to show them that he's, he's standing firm. He wanted to be served in Germany. Um, but that's also part of the fact that he loved speaking German and he enjoyed the, the German culture and something about him allowed him to just never look back. He never looked back. He, he told the stories because he thought it was very important for all of us to be aware and to know and to connect. But his life was all about positive thinking, um, enjoying life and doing what's right because tomorrow may be your last day. Right. Now again, uh, reiterating what we've said, but you grew up hearing these stories on an almost daily basis. You grew up knowing what your grandfather's life was about, understanding what the Holocaust was about. Um, yet in high school, you went on a school trip um, to Poland to visit the camps. Talk about how that impacted you. Um, I think that at 16 or 17, going to Auschwitz or Majdanek or Treblinka is a, is a very difficult experience. Um, I, my wife just asked me if I, if I saw our daughter, who's now 15, going there, and I, and I wasn't sure. I think that growing up in Israel where part of the indoctrination is in, in grade school, going into all of these details and understanding that the state of Israel was formed in order to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Again, it's a, it's a terrible month to, to, have, to have to say that. I think it's easier to be a 17-year-old Israeli that is fully immersed uh, in this history and visit Auschwitz. Um, but, it's, but it's a very, very difficult. It was difficult for me, even though I've lived through this. Um, very particularly, you hear the stories, you know the facts, 
But then you get there and, you, and it's freezing cold. And you're wearing your, I mean, you're wearing your coat and you're still freezing cold and you're seeing what you're seeing and you, and you know that your grandparents and your family members were there with a, with a thin piece of cloth on their skin having to survive this, I mean, terrible period. I mean, it hits you when you're there. So you go with your high school, um, and then you go a few years later, I believe, with your grandfather. What did it mean for you personally to travel back to the camps with your grandfather? Um, he really, really wanted to go. Really wanted to go. And because the camp is in former Eastern Germany, we couldn't go until the wall had fallen. So we had to wait till 1991. Um, and he, he was itching to go, and he, when are we going, when are we going? So we went. Um, we arrived at Buchenwald, and he was very disappointed to see that most of the camp was demolished mm -hmm. and destroyed. So it was very difficult for him because he was ready to take me by the hand and go back to all the stories, and there was, there was very little. Only the crematorium really stands because it's a, it's a, it's a, stone, um, it's a stone building. Um, but we spend three good hours there, moving from one quarter to the next and reliving the stories in, in his time there. Um, and we drove all the way back to his town and we visited uh, the graves of his ancestors. Some, of, some other family members are here. Um, um, it was a very, very special trip. Um, he didn't want to go back after that. That was, that was the one time he wanted to, to co-see, close that chapter in his life. Mm. But we will talk about it a lot. Now, in the book, you talk about the camps are liberated, um, but many people stayed in the camps for a while after liberation, getting their health back up before they ended up maybe at a displacement camp or going back home. And in that time period, your grandfather made a cigarette holder. Um, and I was curious if your family still had that. So after the liberation, and again, I'm not going to spoil the book for, for those of you who are going to read. Uh, there are very unique circumstances that allowed my grandfather um, to be well-fed um, um, when, when, um, when they were released. His father was a, in a very, very bad condition, so he had to stay there uh, and be nourished by the, um, the American doctors. And my grandfather was walking around a 17-year-old board, uh, so he was walking around the town outside of Buchenwald. Uh, he found some stuff that he was able to sell uh, to some GIs to, uh, to finance their way back um, in bus trains and in cars. Um, but he also found some of his uh, Soviet uh, comrades uh, from the factory who opened a, um, a wood shop and they would sort of create some, some art. And he created a, a, a unique cigarette holder where he carved his uh, prisoner number um, and KLB. This, uh, so Buchenwald concentration camp in German, uh, and he gave it to Yad Vashem Museum uh, before, he, before he passed away, and it's there, presented in their permanent collection. I love that. Can you share with our audience your grandfather's three mantras? Heard it every day. Um, always remember that life is good. Um, always think positively, and most importantly, know that if you don't take care of yourself, no one else will. Coming from a man who was in the Holocaust, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you for sharing your grandfather's story with us. Um, I'd like to open it up to audience questions. 
We do ask that you raise your hand so we can bring a microphone to you um, so that your question's picked up by our cameras. So, Tricia, there's a question right here. You mentioned the mayor gave a paper something so the Germans wouldn't pick up your family members. How did they get sent then, or is that in your book? Mm -hmm. You would not want to spoil the. <coughs> How did they? How'd they end up in the camp? How did they end up in the camp if the, they were protected by the mayor saying these are the 10 families? So I'll, I'll, I'll provide a, a, a high level sort of connection between that, that episode and the camp without spoiling too much because there's a lot to spoil. Um, things deteriorated gradually during the war. So initially they were allowed to uh, allow 10 families with white certificates. When the white certificates were um, um, canceled, they issued three pink certificates and only three families were there until the day where there were no more pink certificates. The day there was no more pink certificates, they had to find another solution and then they went into hiding. So they went into two years of hiding um, in a number of cities in Slovakia and were then uh, turned uh, to the Gestapo by a Jewish informer in, in Bratislava. And again, it's, it's a without spoiling too much. Thank you. <laughs> um, are there other questions there, over here, Tricia? Thank you so much for um, writing this and allowing this history to not be forgotten. Um, I'm a little curious to know about the, the uh, relig religiosity of both your uh, grandfather and perhaps other Holocaust survivors that you've interviewed and met and their belief in God, not only before the war, but then what were, were there any changes after the war in their beliefs? Thank you for your question. Um, so Alexander's family um, is, uh, comes from a, from a branch of, of ultra-religious rabbis in Europe. Um, his great-grandfather, Rabbi Shlomo Cohen Rosenberg, the rabbi of Tashnad, was um, a famous rabbi at his time, and his publications are, are prevalent and, and available today. Um, his grandfather, Bernard, um, was a, a very shrewd businessman and trader. And as part of his business, uh, he paid for his siblings to go to school, and he ended up being less orthodox um, because he had to he had to be out there and, and do business and, and operate businesses and stores, etc. And Alexander and Solomon grew, grew up in houses that were, um, I would say, conservative um, and traditional. So they they lit they lit candles on, on Friday night and went to went to shul uh, on high holidays, but they were not religious. Um, they respected religions uh, meaningfully, and most of their family members were religious. Um, when, they, when they were at camp, they went through a number of experiences, and again, I'm not gonna spoil and go over, um, that, that created um, deeper, uh, deeper barriers between them and religion. Uh, they still respected religion a lot, uh, but, they, but they no longer um, practiced it. Um, he always, my grandfather always said, I mean, there is a God, it's in you, and if you help yourself, God is gonna help you. Uh, so again, I'm not gonna categorize sort of that, that view of, um, of God, but, but they were not, but they were in, in their life, in, especially back in Israel, they were secular. 
Are there any other questions? I actually have one. Um, so obviously you wrote this book because your grandfather shared his stories with you every day. And so the stories were in you. But you obviously also had to do a lot of research, which led you to some of these family members. Um, can you talk about the process of how do you write a book like this? So the first step was recording him and his mother. So during the 80s and 90s, uh, I collected dozens of hours of his recordings and his mother's recordings. And they were both happy to share. And those are treasures that will forever remain uh, with our family. So that was the foundation of the story. Beyond that, technology today allows us to discover many things that we were not able to do before. Uh, a good friend of mine from the military in Israel started a company called uh, My Heritage. Mm -hmm. Uh, that created a lot of um, new and uh, novel tools to identify uh, ancestries and, um, and information about your family. That allowed me to build a lot more knowledge than my grandfather and his parents had about their family. Because think about it, that family started separating um, late in the 19th century, and when the war came, they lost contact altogether. So there are three or four generations that, of families that were very close-knit and one of the same that just completely lost touch for six years, seven years. So they couldn't fill these gaps. Technology was able to fill yeah. these gaps. And I was able to reach out and um, meet some amazing people. Most of them are in the United States. Some of them are in Australia and Argentina and all sorts of places. But they all started from the same small town in Slovakia. That's incredible. I want to thank you for joining us. I recommend for all of you to please buy a book. They're for sale right outside this door. And um, Orrin will do a book signing um, out there as well, um, out this door. Um, it's really worth the read. The book is incredible. The story is incredible. Um, so please go buy the book, and we'll see you out there for the signing. Thank you so much for telling your story. Copies of The Apprentice of Buchenwald can be purchased through the Reagan Library Museum Store. Every purchase you make from our catalog, website, or museum store is a critical component to our success. In short, your purchase supports our efforts to extend the legacy of President Ronald Reagan. Purchases can be made at reaganlibrary.com store. To find a listing of all upcoming events, including all programming associated with our Auschwitz exhibit, please visit reaganfoundation.org events. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening, and God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, 
Search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.